Meredith Monday, welcome and stay with us. Chris, how's it going? It's going well, Mike. How are you? Good. Good. Thank you very much. Just been telling you my Trinitarian woes. <laughs> and my John Frame Wars. Oh. Oh boy. Man, what a deep hole that is. Yes, it is. Wow. I, I've been, actually been talking about it all week on the podcast. So Oh really? Yeah, I've just been sort of it's been a difficult week. Last week I um yeah, my wife's been sick and you know, oh, the no. kids have been at home and I've been trying to just get podcasts out and and so the only thing I've, I've really been doing is, is reading through this dissertation by Timothy Miller about John Frame, just trying to get my head around perspectivalism, just an honest, an honest, making an honest go of it, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, whew, man, it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. So would you consider yourself a perspectivalist? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, you mean you want my perspective on that? <laughs> um, I can give you a tri-perspectival perspective. <laughs> nice. So who knows? Who knows? I might I might have to turn Friday into Framian Friday. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> Let's with that in mind. Uh go to some Klein and get some get some good clear. What what you do appreciate about Klein, or actually pretty much anyone else. Oh wait, wait, wait. This is something I wanted to talk about. You know what I wish? Okay. If I had a birthday wish. I would wish that Klein wrote like Frame in terms of his easiness of of of, of writing. I mean, Frame is really good like that, right? He's mm-hmm. just he's just super easy. You can feel like you can read tons in a, in a matter of seconds. Um, but then he gets all wishy-washy when it comes to the thoughts it's, uh, themselves, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, can't we just switch Klein and Frame in terms of their literary <laughs> style and theologies? <laughs> I think that would be good. Um, but yeah, so then you get to Klein, it's kind of like super technical and <laughs> so brutal to read. Um, but then, but then, um, you know, you, you, you're refreshed, you come out thinking, okay, I actually know what's going on, uh, which is good. And I suppose that's where Amen. you, you provide the mediator, uh, the mediating between, uh, the two, <laughs> you, know? you write like frame and you think like Klein. Has anyone ever summarized your book that way? <laughs> no, I don't think so. That, that's well, I'm, I'm always available to write forwards, brother. Yeah, <laughs> this man writes like frame. I <laughs> know <laughs> <laughs> you would love that, and he yeah, thinks right. like Oh <laughs> No, that's good. All right, so we are looking at um, uh, chapter four, covenant yes. of common grace, grace to everyone and everything. Um, any thoughts going into this chapter? Um, not that any of these chapters are unimportant, but this one is uh, so huge. Um, yeah. And it's, it's kind of one of those where the rubber meets the road for Christians in terms of, um, living your daily Christian life. Um, yeah. It totally. has some practical implications. Mission, cultural engagement. This is all, it's all common grace. You have to just yeah. understand this. Yeah. Cultural mandate flows into that. Um, yeah, good. All right. Well, you know, with that in mind, then you start by um, saying, you know, just as a continuation of the previous chapters, um, you know, the covenant works is in place, but Adam fell. Mm-hmm. And, um, and one of the interesting things is that you take a kind of a, a perhaps an angle that people wouldn't have thought about in terms of Adam and Eve. 
um, you know, Adam left Eve to fend for herself. Yeah, I think that um, what Paul is doing in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, um, really speak to this. Um, because Adam was supposed to be like Christ has been for us, yeah. where Christ is yeah. presenting us as a spotless and um, a spotless bride um, without blemish. And that's what Adam was supposed to do. Hmm. Um and so when the serpent entered the garden and began to tempt Eve, Adam should have intervened right then and banished the serpent and protected his wife. Um, but uh, in the narrative, he's he's nowhere to be found. Mm. Um, I think even just the, the statement, where was Adam? You know, it kind of mm-hmm. says it all, doesn't it? You know, you just don't know where he was. He just wasn't on site. That's for sure. You know, whatever he was doing, he wasn't, he wasn't even close to doing what he should have been doing, you know. And, exactly. Um, and you have so much, just in terms of the temple guardian thing and, um, mm. you know, and just the, the, he had a role, you know. And um, so just, you know, what do you think about the whole if, if, um, if Adam had, uh, at least if Eve had sinned, um, you know, could Adam have brought it back at that point, or is it, it? Would that have? I know a lot of people would take exception to that sort of thing, but I suppose it goes together with the covenant headship idea. Um, if Adam was the covenant head, then it really primarily mattered if he himself um, committed the sin. Or would you would you uh, have some nuance in that? That's a really interesting question, um, and I guess technically um, he wouldn't have been guilty in in himself and yet if i'm if i'm on to something in terms of the ephesians 5 connection Mm -hmm. then he would be guilty of not um right true yeah fulfilling his role as husband yes you know guardian of the garden right totally you don't think there was anything particularly uh, to do with that probationary tree itself and the eating that would have kind of sealed the deal but i suppose sin is sin right and if he had um if you had sinned in that way, then yeah, you've got something ahead. I know a lot of people will talk about, even just within the context of covenant theology, they'll talk about, you know, um, perhaps uh, there would have been a kind of theocratic judgment upon Eve. <laughs> you know, Adam could have, Adam could have still, even if Eve had fallen, you know, judged her along with the serpent, and maybe God would have raised up. I think I've heard Leon say that even. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, you know, you make a good point in that. You know, maybe that's all just too late anyway, um, if this is a thing. Where is Adam? <laughs> it's yeah, the big right. issue. Yeah. Well, there we go. There's something to think about. Uh, but one way or another, they fell, and um, that's the big thing. And Judgment Day came. And here's where you get to another awesome little bit of Kleinianism um, in that our English translations kind of talk about a nice little stroll in the cool of the day at that point. <laughs> <laughs> and we have covered this in, in the past. But, uh, yeah, what are you saying there? Yeah. Um, this is one of Klein's insights that I, I will always uh, cherish to the day that I die. Mm. Um, but he looks at Genesis three eight and he says, you know, I'm I'm pretty sure that our English translations are not getting this correctly because in the narrative here God has said, in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Um, so he means business. Mm-hmm. Adam and Eve have eaten from this tree. And we're supposed to take our English translations at face value and that God was 
going for some sort of constitutional stroll in the evening breeze mm. and it, it it's just completely out of place mm. and um klein uh looks at the hebrew there in genesis 3 8 and says well you know that word ruach uh can be translated wind and you know if you dial the forecast down a few notches i guess you can get breeze um but it that same word can also be translated spirit and if we translate it that way god is walking in the spirit of the day not in the breeze of the day and yeah. spirit of the day is a completely um eschatological phrase that you would find in the the prophets for mm. example and so i i think uh, that fits the context much better. Adam mm. and Eve have just broken the covenant that God made with them. And so here, what they're hearing is the sound of the Lord, the Kol Yahweh, yeah, um, yeah. the angry judge who is striding into his courtroom to pronounce sentence. Um, that makes much more sense. Out that's of not the, like the sound of footsteps either. I mean, no. you've got, you've, you know, you've got the sound of the, the Kol Adonai. I mean, it's, it's a powerful idea right throughout the whole... Old Testament always associated to terrifying judgment. So, I mean, you know, that, that works together with that as well, the spirit of the day and the sound of the Lord. Um, yeah, I mean, it's terrifying. Something, as you said uh, a while back, it's the end of the world. You know, this is it. Yes. And um, yeah, I mean, so we're only, you know, three chapters in to this big book, the Bible, and it's like, it's the end of the world already. Yeah. <laughs> Eschatology. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, it just it makes what comes after so much more profound as well because uh, you know you really get when there's Genesis three fifteen and the first gospel, it's in this context you know uh, very apparent you know you can see that what what is happening there is you know, they're not being destroyed and even just as we get into common grace you see the um, as you describe it the stay of execution uh, mm. it's, the, the grace idea is is just uh, is just amplified I think. Uh, when you have that it, context in mind, yeah, yeah. Then, then Genesis three fifteen is overwhelming. Um, yeah, because it's not difficult for us to identify with Adam and Eve in that moment of Genesis three eight, because we all have that sense of mm, mm. being under God's judgment because of our sin, mm. um, and uh, in spite of what what He should say to us, um, we get Genesis three fifteen instead. Mm, totally. Yeah. Um, you talk about um, just a, a few New Testament texts there in relation to, um, the, the, I suppose, the motivation or yeah, the reason behind um, common grace itself, or I suppose even just um, uh, before we get to that, well, I suppose just trying to set up what, what is the point of the stay of execution, you know, um, because I suppose Adam and Eve could have been saved on the spot and that could have been the end of it, you know, <laughs> or something like that. Um, right. but, but yeah, there's uh, there's something going on behind this whole thing. Uh, you want to cue us in on that? Yeah. So uh, leading up to these New Testament passages that I, I quote, um, I noticed that um, the verses right around Genesis 3.15 are sort of um, backhanded blessings mm. is the way that I like to refer to them. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, Adam is going to uh, have difficulty in providing for his family. It'll be by the sweat of his brow. Mm -hmm. um, the ground is not going to cooperate uh, very fully or completely with him. Um, Eve is going to have pain in childbirth. Mm -hmm. um, and there's going to be discord in the marital relationship. 
Um, so those all sound like really bad things. And um, those of us who live them on a daily basis know how bad they really are. And yet um, the implication behind each one is that human life is going to go on because in order for um, the atoms of the, not just Adam, but his son and, and his son's son and, you know, so on and so forth mm -hmm. to struggle to provide for their families means that families are going to continue uh, to be there. And mm -hmm. um, for Eve and her daughters that come after her to have pain in childbirth means that children are going to continue to be born Yeah, and uh, you know, so on and so forth. So um, in a way God is saying, I'm not going to bring the full force of my, you know, the curse of, of death for eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil right now. I'm going to uh, stay that execution for a while. Mm. And um, so that's the point at which I turn mm. to these mm. New Testament passages and, and look at how God is saying that um, he's going to be patient with us uh, mm. and not just those of us who... Um, you know, may secretly think that we deserve to have God be patient with us, mm -hmm. but even the wicked people who want nothing to do with God, mm. um, he's going to be patient with them as well um, so that he can save everybody that he's going to save. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it was, I think I heard it from Michael Horton first, but um, I think Horton talks about a, you know, the, this common grace idea, just God was going to build a stage upon which the drama of, uh, redemption can mm. play itself out and and you know you, you don't have a drama without a stage <laughs> and right. um you know just the, the 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 scaffolding and the stage is being set up with this common grace idea as you say these backhanded blessings um you know just they don't deserve any of those things and so that's where it, i think a lot of people trip up on the idea of common grace um you know is it grace you know is it really grace or is it you know especially after all all our debates prior to, you know, talking about grace prior to the fall, you know, what is grace exactly? We need to be careful with the term grace. Um, you know, have you ever struggled with the term common grace or is there a better term or do you like that one? I'm, I'm very happy with it. Um, and I mean, I, I talk more in this chapter about why we call it common grace. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know if you want to get to that now or wait until. Yeah, totally. Whenever. Yeah. So, I mean, we've <laughs> talked before on Meredith Mondays about mm -hmm. uh, the definition of grace, that it is demerited favor. It is um, the ultimate blessing in spite of what we deserve from God. Right, right, right. And, and I think that does describe um, the blessings that God is giving Adam and Eve in Genesis three sixteen through 19. Mm -hmm. um, it's not like uh, Adam and Eve or any of us deserve to um, still be able to provide for our families. Mm. It's not like we deserve to still be able to have children. It's not like we deserve to still have marriages. So in that sense, um, God is giving us blessings in spite of our sin. It's just that they're not saving blessings. They're not blessings that are going to get us into heaven. Mm. They're blessings mm. that we share in common with unbelievers. Yeah. Um, and it retains the idea of a kind of a demerited favor of, of sorts, right? Is that what mm -hmm. you're saying? So it, it has that overlap with with um, special grace, um, right. and yet 
you know, and in that way is, you know, it's a, it's a right use of the term. It doesn't sort of make the term itself confusing you. Uh, but it's to everyone and it's not salvific. And, um, and yet it, it, it's this, um, it's the, uh, yeah, the, the stage, the framework in which we then operate to, you know, as the people of God, and you, you immediately start uh, talking about Seth and Cain and, you know, just the, the Canaanite cities and, um, and how that, that demonstrates that kind of interaction and culture and how it all works. And there's so much to be learned there for the church, even in those first opening few chapters. Um, you want to walk us through uh, some of that, you know, how does culture fit into this and you know, how do we know what to do with culture and how does common grace um, <coughs> uh, help us there? Right. So there are different uh, institutions that belong to each of these covenants. Um, we, next week, we're going, Lord willing, we will talk about the covenant of grace. And there's only one institution that belongs to that covenant, and that's the church. Um, but uh, we can see uh, throughout all of scripture that there are different institutions that belong to this uh, covenant of common grace, namely uh, the family, which we're already dealing with in these early chapters of Genesis, um, the institution of the state and culture as well. And so just like the, the backhanded blessings of Genesis three sixteen through 19 apply to both believer and unbeliever. So both believer and unbeliever participate together in these uh, institutions of family, state, and and culture, and that means that they're good just the way God made them. We don't need to try to Christianize them in order to make them legitimate. Um, and you know, some of the first developers of culture that we read about in the Bible are from the unbelieving line of Cain. You know, they're the ones that are. Um, creating new things out of metal and they're developing banking and uh, making musical instruments and all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. We spoke about, um, and just thinking about the, the covenant itself um, of common grace. I know obviously by the time you get to the, the rainbow, you know, it's, it's pretty full throttle at that point and uh, clear, but um, <clears throat> we spoke about this uh, a while ago, this, um, this mark of Cain, which mm. uh, is, you know, it, it gives this, again, if you, uh, as you say in the book, um, the, you know, you could call that, an, that, that could be, uh, the Hebrew word is ot, which um, could mean pledge or assurance. And, and really that's sort of a preliminary idea to, to the covenant um, that, that, that God reaffirms with Noah. But on that basis, Cain could then move ahead with his city, despite, I mean, truly, if ever there was an unworthy character, you know, you've got Cain, and in that very context, uh, you see this thriving, as you've just spoken of, uh, which I think is really powerful, you know, just to, so you got the backhanded blessings to begin with, you know, which set it up, you've got this thing going on with Cain, and, and uh, the developers of culture in a you know, in a legitimate sort of uh, scenario that God himself is very clearly set up there, uh, even to someone like Cain, who just in by no way, uh, by no definition is, is a believer. And then you, uh, you, you sort of, uh, you draw from that, you know, this, uh, everything you've just been saying, and then we get to the Noah covenant, but there's just a little quote here <clears throat> that I really like just before you get onto the Noah covenant. Uh, God did not establish secular culture in Genesis 4, and Christian culture in Genesis 5. 
um, as Michael Horton put, uh, puts it in his uh, book, Putting Amazing Back into Grace, God has never organized any Christian concerts, uh, produced any Christian t-shirts, nor promoted any Christian businesses. Music, fashion, and business are good just the way that they are. Those things are not set apart, holy. Uh, we believers are. So believers and unbelievers can work together to build cities, make money, make music, musical instruments, and forge tools and other things out of metal. The difference comes uh, or ought to come in how we do our work. It's not the shoe that is holy, but the shoemaker who is set apart, uh, who has set apart Christ as Lord in his heart and makes each, each shoe as though God himself had commissioned him to make it. So uh, that's just, I don't know, in my mind, a good wrap-up of the whole thing right there. And much of what we've spoken mm. of prior as well, just in terms of the shoemaker and everything. But that's a good, just a, that flow of thought, I think, is helpful in just seeing how, how common grace matters to that direct application of the Christian life, living in the world, uh, in it, but not of it, you know? And, um, yeah, anything else you wanted to add there before we go into no? <clears throat> No, um, I just, I hope that that makes sense to uh, the people who are listening to this podcast and whoever might happen to read the book, just that um, the vocation that God has given you um, is fine. And mm. just do that vocation as though God himself had um, interviewed you for the job and, and hired you and you're working for him um, and and that's really all that there is to it. It's not that you need to, um, you know, put notches in your belt in terms of how many of your coworkers you've um, shared the gospel with. That's, I mean, I, I don't want to discourage you from sharing the gospel, mm -hmm. um, but that's not the the point. Um, yeah. You don't have to redeem your job. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And you don't have to. But oh, they they do. I mean, if you're a shoemaker, you do have to just you have to do a little tiny fish somewhere. Right, <laughs> just a little, just a little one. I mean, if it's no, going to be a Christian shoe, just one, one small fish. <laughs> and surely, I mean, a Christian T-shirt without a fish? Come on, can that can such a thing even be done? Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just it's crazy. I mean, I remember. I, I think we have spoken about this prior as well, but but just the way that we get it one hundred percent wrong, you know, mm -hmm. um, the way that the church wants to stick out from Monday to uh, Saturday with their fish t-shirts and I love Israel t-shirts and whatever else we come up with. Um, but on Sunday, you know, we want to look like the world uh, with right. rock concerts and, and uh, church services that are indistinguishable from, from, you know, things that the world do, you know, rather than embrace mm -hmm. our, our weirdness at that point. Um, and I just, I remember hearing that for the first time and just being struck by it. it was, you know, that's so true. If this is true, uh, if if this common grace idea is true, and th then then that's something everyone's got to think about. But um, yeah, Noahic covenant. We're down to Noah, and there are two covenants with Noah. Wow, imagine that. <laughs> All right, let's talk about that. Yeah, so this is really where we see the covenant of common grace formalized. Um, I mean, we've seen the the principles involved in the the passages that we've talked about so far. But um, here we've got God making a covenant with Noah and his family in Genesis 6 and 7 to save them from the floodwaters. But it's the covenant that God makes when Noah and his family leave the ark in Genesis 8, verse 20, through chapter 9, verse 17. Um, 
where we really get this covenant of common grace formalized. Um, and what's interesting about that is that it's not made with Noah and his family. Mm. It's not even made with all human creatures in the world. It's made with everything that God has made, all of creation. Mm. Mm. Um, and, you know, um, one of the fascinating features about this covenant is that it lasts, according to God, while the earth remains. So he's, he's yeah. not going to destroy everything with a flood or in any other way, you know, in such a complete way um, until he's ready for his son to return and bring about the final judgment. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And and I suppose did, uh, we might have missed over this part, but um, you talk about if there's any sense in which the, the covenants of common grace is uh, based upon Christ's work. We know, of course, mm. the covenant of um, grace is, <laughs> but... Um, but in what sense is the covenant of grace? I, is that, I think there was a debate about that amongst Reformed theologians at certain points. Um, I remember something like that. Um, you know, to what degree does it flow out of Christ's work on the cross? What do we say about that? Yeah, I don't think it is um, directly related to Christ's work on the cross, but uh, it is certainly indirectly related in the mm. sense that you mentioned earlier where God is um, providing the the stage, so to speak, mm. for uh, he's providing a stable environment, mm. should we say, for human life to flourish so that he has human beings to save. Mm. Um, without this covenant of common grace, there wouldn't be a humanity to save. Yeah, totally. Um, so just to just to also um, I know a lot of people with the with the bow, you know, with the rainbow. Oh, Would you yeah. go along with the idea that that's a, a war bow that's pointed upwards? Yeah, I, I really loved Klein's analysis of this too because it was just something I had never learned growing up. But, um, I mean, here is this... Um, it would have been the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of, of the gun, mm, right? Mm. Um, and so here's this instrument of war that God... Um, would have, should have been, uh, you know, pointing at us. So the, mm. the bow would have been going um, in a different way. direction yeah. than we normally see it. Mm. But because it's in the um, the shape that we normally see it, it's that God is carrying it at his side in a position of rest, mm. not, you know, drawn uh, against us. Yeah. Wow. Totally. Amazing. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> That's so cool. Uh, you know, it sort of reminds me, I mean, after you've read through Klein, I mean, you can't look at clouds in the same way. <laughs> right. <laughs> you can't look at a rainbow in the same way. You know, just, just taking, you know, a flight somewhere where sometimes you see all of these things, you get a real glory cloud vibe going on, mm -hmm. you know, in a plane. And, I, oh, man, just the, the Kleinian theology is, is rife. <laughs> you know, you just think, uh, you know, if this is in any way representative of you know that invisible realm you know then even just a just the cloud phenomenon on its own uh is is impressive enough let alone uh, mm -hmm. anything that's described by way of the glory cloud wow and the rainbow and man it's so cool i love all of this stuff and oh my goodness the the light refractors the trees the lagas the lagas light bearers <laughs> <laughs> right. there's that as well let's not forget the Lagos light bearers um, <laughs> anyways um, so 
in conclusion, um, just kind of wrapping all this up, um, what do you want to highlight from what you said there? Um, well, uh, we, we should not take uh, common grace for granted. It's not that God owes it to us. Right. Um, Good. Yeah. Just, just because we do experience it day in and day out, um, it, you know, it can be easy to maybe fall into that way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important to remember that we deserve um, the worst sort of punishment in hell mm-hmm. for our sin and that God is giving us this um, certain kind of grace. It is mm-hmm. uh, common, but mm-hmm. it is grace um, that lets us to, you know, continue to live. Um uh, just reminding people that um, you don't need to baptize anything in order for it to be legitimate. Um, uh, you know, I there are um, rock bands that I really appreciate who are not Christian, and one of the things that I appreciate about them is that they get um, they get upset about things that are worth being upset about. Yeah, um, so it's with movies as well. You know. Yes. Same sort of thing, and that you have the often. My brother and I talk about it. You know, you're drawn. You know, you feel like, wait a minute, is this a sinful thing? I'm being drawn to the dark stuff. But in some senses, it's just a, you know, there's a honesty there that is just mm-hmm. you're not you're not seeing in the Christian stuff. I mean, I don't think it has to be that way with with Christian music. I mean, not like I'm gunning for Christian music, but you know, if if someone's gonna they're, they're intent on being a Christian band or anything, I mean, they could take a lesson from that. You know, they could right. They could they could work on that a little bit, or even the Christian movies out there. You know. uh, so probably somebody like Johnny Cash would be yeah uh, yeah yeah totally. a real um, stark contrast to what we're talking about in terms of Christian music in general. Yeah, but I mean, he he was way too honest for most Christians. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and that's, I suppose, the thing. I mean, you're not going to stay long in the Christian world with that level of honesty anyway. You right. know, you'll probably get shunned and kicked out. But, um, yeah, I mean, look, I don't know. Just, to, I mean, would, would you say, I know just when we were talking about the Lutheran thing the other day, we might have touched on this, but, um, you know, I mean, I, I certainly, as we were saying earlier, you know, you wouldn't gun for a Christian shoe. You don't want anyone to necessarily have to baptize things. But would you object to... I don't want to use Christian shoes because that's a little bit ridiculous. But um, <laughs> you know, Christian music, I suppose. The, you know, the the greats over the years. I suppose you got some pretty awesome Christian composers and whatnot. Um, you know, is it is it wrong for Christians to want to go in that direction? Um, sorry, uh, I was having trouble hearing some of that. Go in which direction? So. You know, I'm just thinking if if there are Christians listening to this going, but I really wanted to start a Christian band, you know, mm. and I really like Christian music. So what do you say to them? Um, may, may, I mean, maybe God has really gifted you musically, and so I would encourage you to be the best musician that you can be. Um, it, that doesn't mean that um, your lyrics need to be like a two by four to somebody's nose. Mm, mm. Um, uh, you know, being, uh, being critical of the things that you see in the world around you that, um, that God would be critical of. Mm, um, mm. That, that's fine. Mm, um, mm. 
Yeah, I suppose for one, one of the things for me is just thinking, you know, the, the issue is less starting a Christian band, you know, and I, I, don't mm-hmm. even know, I don't even know anyone who does want to start a Christian band. So let me just put that out there as well. But just, <laughs> just using this as kind of the, the go-to illustration, um, you know, it, that's less of a problem for me. It's more that the whole I must redeem music thing, you know, right. that is a promise. The transformationalism as a thing is where I think I, I would say, hey, you're moving in the wrong direction there. That's just a, it's a kind of weird goal. It's going to get, get you confused or in trouble or, you know, disillusioned or something. Um, but, you know, I mean, for a Christian who wants to, you know, get together with other Christians and, th- and sing overtly Christian music, I don't know that I have a problem with that. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's just kind of right. a, a thing. And same thing with, uh, you know, you might, you're always going to end up with something, you know, that's going to perhaps never, be, it's just, the problem comes in, I think, a lot of the time when they try and you have to get into some, if you want to get into any level of mainstream anything, it's always going to compete with the city of Cain, so to speak. And it's always going to come across as sectarian and ghetto-ish, and you know, and and that's where, where it does get a little bit awkward, you know. But it's it's this. I think there's some little zone in there that I'm okay with, but I know that I'm not okay with transformationalism. Absolutely, and yeah. I yeah, I I agree with what you just said, um, and I so I guess what I was trying to say is. Um, similar to what I was saying about vocation earlier and a musician is a completely legitimate vocation. If that's what God has called you to Mm. simply be the best musician that you can be. Mm. And that is what glorifies God. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't have to, there's no, there's no burden. I mean, whether, whether we're talking about music or, you know, whatever vocation, there's no, there's no, you don't have to redeem it in order to make it legitimate is the big burden here. Yep, um, yep. You know, it is legitimate because of this very covenant that we're talking about. That's the reason. And um, and you can totally give God glory as much as if you were overtly singing, uh, you know, Christian singing in church, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe let's not cross over to the sacred sphere. But you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, totally. Um, cool. So that was that. And then the other thing. Oh, man, you said something else. Uh, let me just see if I can find it quickly. Um, yeah, just what you said before, the, um, you know, when we experience some sort of suffering or hardship um, or heartache, um, as you said, you know, we don't want to just take this thing for granted. Uh, but I think that's when it does start coming out. You know, often, often we, uh, we forget, you know, we forget that, uh, you know, what we deserve is hell. And, mm-hmm. and you know, it really, it, I think that's a huge pastoral point because... You know, it's just to, it puts out all of our suffering in perspective. Um, it even helps me talk to unbelievers who, you know, are, are suffering or perhaps um, going through some difficulty and then ask me how God can be good. You know, uh, I just, it gives me a lot to talk about because I, I can say, well, actually, you know, the, the bow should be pointed right at us right now. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, whatever suffering you're going through, you know, the reality is it's, it's not even worth comparing to what we should be all enduring right now. But we don't, we're not, we have, we have time to turn and Jesus has promised to wipe away every tear, but that's, you know, that's for those who repent and uh, see their sin. And, you know, so you just have a conversation tool at that point to, to be able to answer quite an, uh, a common objection, you know, to, uh, to God in light of suffering and, and that sort of thing. Absolutely. And, mm. and maybe I can tack on to that, that um, that's also an appropriate time to, to weep with that. I mean, even that, even the unbeliever and say, yeah, suffering sucks. Mm. 
Mm. You know, um, I, I don't think we say that enough as Christians. Mm. Um, and it goes along with just the, the entire idea of this chapter. But um, I was thinking during part of what we were discussing about how Christians, at least in America, tend not to have funerals. They have celebrations of life. Yeah. Right. Which completely glosses over the fact that death is horrible. Yeah. Death is one of the worst things that we experience. Mm. Um, mm. You know, and I, I, I think it would be refreshing for an unbeliever to to hear us acknowledge something like that. Yeah, and even at that level, related to curse, you know, it, mm-hmm. there, there's a there's a double edge to this whole common grace, common curse thing, you know. Right. Yeah, it's it's difficult, and it, it it reflects a greater curse at that level. Um, yeah, totally. Hey, and then you end off with something totally shocking. Um, you, you you talk about America not being in a unique relationship with God. I mean, I don't even know what got, to make of that. <laughs> like, I got really self conscious about this part, thinking about our discussion because. <laughs> Uh, it's like everyone I, mean, I, I, I love the way that that applies to America but like everyone else just scratches their head <laughs> you know they're like dude uh, yeah <laughs> no no, he, no America is not in a relationship with God right but, uh, yeah except for some people in America that think so you know right so I guess I felt like I needed to write this simply because that was the environment that I grew up in totally. was that yeah. Um, this was God's chosen nation and, Mm -hmm. but but, I mean, it's happened before. I mean, well, South Africa, South Africa did the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that was the whole, that was the whole thing. Uh, South Africa was the Israel that, you know, that was the whole reason for the apartheid thing, you know, let's kill the Amalekites, et cetera. And, um, it probably so, came from England because that was rampant among the Puritans yeah, that I was reading. That's right, totally. That was it. Dutch Puritans coming so. down. Yeah, no, it's it's um, it has happened before. No, it's actually a really legitimate point, and that's that's obviously the if you don't get this common grace thing right, oh, that's where you go, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there are more there are more things at play there, but yeah, this is one of the one of the big things to get right. Um, and then just, I suppose, the anomaly of Israel, or not anomaly, but just Israel was a unique thing that, that God was doing, you know, together with this idea of common grace. So uh, we'll get to that when we get to it. Definitely. But yeah. I mean, I, I'm I'm not even uncomfortable with what you just said. I, I grew up in dispensationalism, and so the church was always referred to as the parenthesis in um, all of these, you know, yeah, uh, the, the history of of god's covenants but klein said no actually israel is the parenthesis in covenant history oh wow that's great oh i've never <laughs> i've never heard that said before that's 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 such a good retort to... <laughs> i believe in the parenthetical age <laughs> yes <laughs> it's just we got it the wrong way around um hey we got more missiles at the end of your chapter <laughs> except the, yes, the, the, the uh, torpedo drew, grew like a big belly and, the Kleinian uh, submarine develops here. Yes. So talk us through, um, for people who can't see what's going on, um, you might have referred back to our previous episode where we were talking about the torpedo or the, <laughs> the submarine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what's going on with these, with these diagrams, Chris? 
So I, I went back to where we left off with the diagram, which does look sort of like a, a missile or a torpedo. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's got the, the top line is the invisible heavens and the bottom line is the visible heavens and the visible earth. Mm-hmm. And because of the fall, um, that bottom line should have stopped right at Eden and it shouldn't have carried through all the way into the new creation. Yeah. And at that point, it looks from our perspective completely hopeless like well there's no way to get from uh the end of eden to the new creation um do not pass go do not collect 200 dollars. end of story but um that's where this uh covenant of common grace comes in where uh, god does connect the end of eden to uh, at least at this point uh final judgment which is the point right before the new creation um so that allows for a humanity to uh, develop through time Hmm. for God to save. Uh, I point out that uh, the difference between the covenant of common grace that we're talking about in this chapter and the covenant of uh, covenant of grace that we will talk about in the next chapter is that this covenant of common grace terminates at the final judgment and it, it terminates in hell. Mm -hmm. Whereas the covenant of grace will consummate um, into the the new creation um, and then the the diagram just points out what I said before about the only institution that belongs to the covenant of, of grace is the church and mm-hmm. that the institutions that belong to the covenant of common grace are the family the culture and the state mm-hmm. and um, yeah that's yeah, it for the diagram <clears throat> did Klein ever draw little trees on that Eden pot or mountains in the middle of the, you know, just just any little benchmark, redemptive historical marks. No, I, I think he probably put some mountains in there every Did once he? in a while. Okay, cool. Because that would look frighteningly similar to if you take off the torpedo part of the and uh, the ceiling, you just have the the belly part. That looks like my little diagram that I came up with even before I met Klein. Makes me feel special. <laughs> hey, so here's a um, here's a common grace test for you, Chris. Let's see if you understand okay. your stuff. You ready? Oh, boy. Um, okay. Church. Well, let's go. Seminary. Is seminary common grace activity or holy activity? I mean, if... Uh, hmm. They posed that it, to Van Drunen. Kind of freaked him out. Yeah. If God <clears throat> is calling someone to pastoral ministry, I can see how it could... Uh, function in a um, uh, covenant of grace sort of way. Mm-hmm. But if someone is simply going to um, learn more about about the Bible and about uh, yeah. theology, yeah. then I can see how it, it could function more in a common grace sort of way. Right, totally. Because some, some polities kind of, or just I suppose ecclesiologies, allow for the seminary being the church, you know, part of the, you know, an extension of. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, I suppose. Um, all right. So what about like church administration? Um, that would be uh, the covenant of grace. Would it be the church administration? Filing your um, tax returns in the, in the oh, church office. Okay. I wasn't taking it that way. I oh, sorry. You you're thinking like, like uh, administration uh, sacraments. Right. Got it. Or even like elders meetings that would. Ah, oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Nothing so holy. No, I was thinking of like Betty, <laughs> church, church secretary. You know, she's in the in the office. You know, right next to the sanctuary. 
She's filing the tax receipts. <laughs> what is that? Yeah, well, tax receipts would definitely be common grace. Common grace, no but it's like in the that. church church building though, you know. <laughs> 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 what if what if she was doing it on a I Sunday? <laughs> you know? uh, right. Okay, what about church marketing? Um you know, and what I'm thinking about here is just like the elders who have a meeting about putting an advert in the local newspaper about their church. I I want to go Covenant of Grace. Wow. You're committed. <laughs> You're committed to this. <laughs> yeah, wow, cool. I mean, I would I would view that kind of an advert as just inviting people to come and hear the the preaching of the word. Yeah, true. Um, true. All right, what other have you got any other difficult situations you can think of? Mm. No, not right off the top of my head, but I, I hats off for such good ones there. Yeah. Well, that's that's uh that's pretty much a wrap, right? Yep, I think we've covered all the the um, the highlights. Let's put it that way. I think I think that's being humble. We've exhausted the topic. There's nothing more <laughs> that can be said about it. We've solved the mysteries of the universe. Um all right. So <laughs> there's nothing more to say about common grace. It is done. Therefore, you know everything you need to know. Now go forth and conquer, but don't don't give way to transformationalism. That's right. Amen. 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 Cool. Thanks Chris. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Mm-hmm.